When have you ever felt like an outsider? I, I can think of a few for me. Uh, the one, one time was in high school. It was the first time I'd ever been on a mission trip. And my dad took me uh, with other people from our church to Mexico. And we went, we, when we went to Mexico, the only Anglo folks that I saw the whole trip were the people from my church from northern Kentucky. That was it. I also, all week long, uh, our, my Mexican brother and sisters just kept going like this to me. Going, huh? 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 And uh, what they meant was, how tall are you? Um, I felt like a freak, but I guess I kind of am. Another time I felt like an outsider was the first time I went to Jenna's, uh, f- to visit Jenna's extended family. It was Thanksgiving. Uh, everyone was there, grandparents, cousins, aunts, uncles, kids everywhere. And I was the only person there who wasn't blood, nor was I married in. Jen and I were just dating at the time. Now, Jenna's maiden name, in case you didn't know, is Marcusano. We were on her dad's family side, that extended family. So they are Italian. And everybody called Grandpa Godfather. I was really scared. I felt like I was on the outside, and I really was. Uh, Another time was uh, in college. I went to a UK-Georgia game in Athens, in Georgia. I I was wearing my UK garb. I was sitting in the middle of the uh, Georgia student section, and um, we were terrible that year. We were terrible every year I was in college. We were terrible every year before I was in college, too. I'm not so sure we're good now. and we were, uh, and Georgia, of course, was really good that year. And at halftime, we were winning. I was the most excited person in that whole stadium. And so I felt like an a- outsider because everybody else was mad as fire. So when have you felt like an outsider? See, you, you know you're an outsider when you're different. In every room you ever walk into, there's a list of expectations that must be met in order for you to be on the inside. In Mexico, I was outside for being Anglo and tall. In Jenna's family, I was on the outside for not being a part of the mafia. (laughs) At Sanford Stadium in Athens, Georgia, I was on the outside for wearing blue. All these differences left me on the outside, and they're all lighthearted. They didn't really cause me any pain at all. But all of us can think of times when we were rejected for being different. And that's really hard. Why is it so hard for us to connect to people who are different? I think it's because it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of listening. It takes a lot of questioning your presumptions about how life is supposed to work. So instead of doing the hard work, we just opt to be around people who are just like us. Republicans hang out with Republicans because it's really hard to listen to a Democrat to understand where they're coming from. And guess what? Same's true, vice versa. Anglos hang out with Anglos because it's really hard to learn from other cultures because it means you have to question your own. Those who are able-bodied usually ignore those who are disabled because they just don't know how to engage Now, I could go on and on and on, but I bring this up because 
the target area for our church that you'll see in our vision statement are the neighborhoods in and around downtown. And the neighborhoods in and around downtown are about as diverse in every way as you'll find in Kentucky. And since that's the case, we're going to have to continue to know how to love all of our neighbors, not just the ones who are like us. And the good news for us this morning is that we're not the first Christians to ever endeavor to try to live this out. The book of Acts paints a picture of the early church and how wildly diverse it was. There were rich folk and poor folk in the early church. There were men and women. There were Africans and Greeks and Samaritans and Jews all in the same room, all in the same room, not just worshiping Jesus, but they were in the same room sharing leadership on behalf of the church of Jesus. And so as much as it is easy to read the book of Acts and see how the gospel is expanding numerically, it's also a book that shows how the gospel makes the church increasingly diverse. And one of the inflection points of how the gospel becomes increasingly diverse is when one of its key leaders, Peter, wakes up to God's plan for building a diverse body of believers that happens in Acts 10. And so we're going to read about two-thirds of it this morning, okay? Uh, let's look at it. It's Acts 10. We'll read through verse 15, then we'll read verses 30 to 45. At Caesarea, there was a name a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who had attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey, approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. Has that ever happened to you when you start praying? And Peter wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals, reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Verse 30. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you, Cornelius is talking to Peter here, so I sent for you, Peter, at once, and you have been kind enough to come. 
Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand. Why do you think Peter understood? It was this trance. This dream that he saw about all those animals coming down from heaven. We'll get into that. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news for peace through Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him, from the, raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach, the God, preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. End of Peter's sermon. To Cornelius and his household. Verse 44. While Peter was saying all these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. The word of the Lord. All right, two main characters, Cornelius and... Cornelius and... All right, so you're going to see, we actually just saw, and we're going to talk more about how they both experienced a conversion on this day. Let's look at Cornelius first. The first thing we see about Cornelius is that he's a centurion. Meaning that he's a Roman soldier. He's not just a Roman soldier, but he's a Roman soldier with authority that he leads a hundred, a hundred soldiers. That's a century. That's why he's called a centurion. So he's a Roman, he's in place of power. And remember that the Jews were living in Israel at this time in the New Testament. But the Jews were not self-governing. Their land had been conquered by the Romans, and now the Romans were ruling over them. Now, when you picture the Romans ruling over the Jews, don't imagine them being enslaved. In many ways, the Jews and the Romans were peaceable with one another. The Romans allowed them to practice their religion, or allowed them to practice their Jewish customs in all the ways that they saw fit. However, just because it was peaceable does not mean the Jews were welcoming to the Romans. There was this simmering, under-the-surface bitterness that the Jews had towards the Romans. They were tired of being excessively taxed. They were tired of not governing themselves. They were tired of seeing centurions and Roman soldiers stationed on their streets to ensure that they were staying in line. So in some ways, you can see how Roman centurions had come to stand as the symbol of oppression to the Jew. Now, if centurions were symbols of oppression, then surely these Roman centurions were considered outsiders. They were different. 
They were other. They were those people. No respectable Jew would be lined up ready to be a neighbor to a centurion. No respectable Jew would let their children marry a centurion. No Jew would be sending Christmas cards to a centurion. No Jews went to the same restaurants as centurions. So when we read about the centurion in Acts 10, you've got to see that he would have been considered by Peter beyond the pale of God's grace. So it looks like, at least from Peter's perspective, that he is out. Cornelius is out because of his ethnicity. But then it looks like Cornelius is in, doesn't it? Look there in verse 2. Verse 2 describes Cornelius as a devout man who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. So he's a man of prayer. He's got his family in order. He's got a belief in God. He's generous with his money. Sounds like he's into me, but he's not. He still needs a Savior. And that's not me reading into the text. That's what Cornelius thinks about himself. He's unsatisfied with being a good person. That's why he's got to go find Peter. He's still got to be converted. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit until he hears the word preached in verses 34 to 43. And then in verse 44, he receives the Spirit. So if Cornelius isn't out because of his ethnicity and he's not in because of his morality, what exactly does it mean to be in? Well, look at Peter. I know it's tempting to think that Peter's in. I mean, he is not just an apostle, he's like the apostle. He's the main player in the first half of the book of Acts. He's seen great ministry. He's He's seen Jesus heal the sick, and he's healed the sick. He's seen Jesus raise the dead, he's raised the dead. He's seen Jesus convert the masses, now Peter has been converting the masses. But something's off with Peter. God's got work to do on this brother. And so God puts Peter into a trance. And in this trance, he sees the same thing three different times. Doesn't that sound like what God's had to do to you before? He's got to use this tool of repetition to get something through your thick skull. That's what he's had to do to me. And that's what he does to Peter. And the vision is this sheet. It's this sheet falling from heaven with all kinds of animals on it. And while the sheet is falling, a voice comes to Peter and says, Peter, rise and eat. And Peter responds essentially saying, are you kidding me? I can't eat all those animals. They'll make me unholy according to the Jewish law. And this shows that Peter doesn't get it. Peter hasn't adjusted fully to the ways of Jesus. All these Jewish dietary laws had passed away. They were of no use to Peter anymore because Jesus had come. 
Peter had forgotten that salvation was by, is determined by one's faith in Jesus, not one's commitment to Jewish ceremonial law. But the problem went beyond dietary laws for Peter. That's not the real lesson that God's trying to teach Peter in this scene. What he's trying to show Peter is that the principle that Peter has applied to foods, Peter's applying to people. See, what the way he thought about food was, this food's good, this food's not. What's he doing with people? These people are good. Jews. These people are not. Gentiles, as signified in the centurion. So God has caught Peter red-handed. He's showing Peter that he's a bigot. And he's doing it by getting very, very personal with him and putting Cornelius essentially on his front steps. So in some ways, when you read this text this far, Cornelius looks like a much better person than Peter, doesn't he? I mean, Peter's the one who's a bigot. And for many of us, bigotry may be the unforgivable sin. You can put up with all manner of faults in others except bigotry. I can understand that. I want to discard people I consider to be bigots too. I want to distance myself away from them as much as possible. But look what God does with Peter. That's not what God does here. God doesn't cancel Peter and move on to someone who's more inclusive. Somehow God thinks he's got something to work with here with Peter. Now, Peter's already a Christian, but God's got to convert Peter's understanding on how the gospel works. So he removes the blinders off Peter's eyes. See, I think this is what had to happen, because if you would have gone up to Peter and said, Peter, are you a bigot? Do you practice discrimination? Do you engage in racist behavior? Peter would have said, no way. In fact, I think if someone asked you that question, you all would answer the same. So would I. Because the nature of favoritism is that we're blind to it. It's like greed. No one thinks they're greedy. Adultery is black and white. Stealing is black and white. Murder is black and white. They're easy to prove. But other sins, they lie beneath the surface. In fact, they're so far beneath the surface that we need God to bring something from the outside, like a dream or like a confrontation from someone who loves us to wake us up to our dark ways. John Newton, uh, if you don't know who John Newton is, you know who he is, you've been affected by him. Uh, he was the author of the hymn, probably the most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He was an Englishman. He wrote dozens of hymns. He was a pastor. And he grew up in a family that was involved in the shipping industry, specifically the slave industry. Newton's father was a sea captain that took slaves from Africa to England. And Newton followed in his father's footsteps. He entered into the same trade. And as a young sailor, Newton was miraculously converted. 
But even after his conversion, he remained in the slave profession. In fact, he remained in the slave profession for a couple years. And then God removed the blinders from his eyes. And when he did, Newton wrote a letter called this, Thoughts About the African Slave Trade. And here's what he said. I hope it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. I was unexpectedly freed from this disagreeable service. Disagreeable, I had long found it, but I think I would have quit it sooner had I considered it, as I do now, to be unlawful and wrong. But I never had a scruple upon this head at the time. Nor was such a thought once suggested to me by any friend. What I did, I did ignorantly, considering it as a line of life which divine providence had allotted me. End quote. I share this with you because this whole idea of preferring people who are like you and disdaining and distancing yourself from those who are different from you, this is not a political problem. It's a sin problem. And when it gets personal for you, like it did for Newton, we'll be filled with sorrow. A sorrow that leads to repentance. Now you might understand these things and be compelled by these things and become an advocate about these things. without them really penetrating your heart. And the only way you know that these things have penetrated your heart, the only way you know that these things have gotten personal for you is if they brought you sorrow. Sorrow like they did for Newton. So we see, ethnicity is not what counted Cornelius out. We see that Peter's ethnicity is not what counted him in. We see that Cornelius' morality didn't get him in. And Peter's bigotry didn't get him out. So how do we get in? We see it at the very end of Acts 10. Peter has seen that the Holy Spirit has fallen on Cornelius. He's seen that the Holy Spirit has fallen on Cornelius' household. And now Peter can't argue with the praise they're now expressing because of their... Conversion. And he says this in verse 47. We didn't read this part, but he says, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And when Peter says this, it shows that he finally gets it. He finally gets it after being shown this vision three times. He finally gets it after having a desirous Gentile show up on his doorstep. He finally gets it after seeing... Cornelius, along with lots of other Gentiles, be converted after he preaches to them. So ironically, Peter and Cornelius understand at the same time that it's not their morality, nor is it their ethnicity, that determines their salvation. See, you and I, we've got the same problem as Cornelius and Peter. We tend to size ourselves up based on our morality. We, t- we tend to size one another up based on what we look like, our ethnicity, in order to see where we're at with God. But what we see in our text is what we do 
And the way we look is not what saves us. And this is hard to believe day in and day out. You've got to fight at a heart level to see that our standing before God is not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on your moral accomplishments. The marker of being in the family of God has nothing to do with your nationality, your ethnicity, your race, nor does it have anything to do with your morality. The only thing that marks you is the Spirit. And all those who respond in faith and repentance have the Spirit. And from that moment on, the Holy Spirit becomes the strongest bond that we can have with one another. It's not your Enneagram. It's not your DNA. It's not who your family are. It's not your socioeconomic background. It's not your political persuasion. All of those are far less powerful bonds than the bond that you have in the Spirit. So as we talk about this, as we think about our neighborhood... And, the, and, and how diverse it is, how much difference there is in our neighborhood. What is success? Is it when this room looks just like our neighborhood and reflects it perfectly? That'd be great. But I think success can be defined as something different. And it starts with exposure. Now, exposure might mean that you've got to get out of your cluster you got to get out of being just self-selecting. We'll only be around people who are like me. How are you going to do that? Well, you might do it by moving to the neighborhood. You might do it by thinking about your job very differently. You might, just be, you might need to think about your job not just as a way to pay your bills, but as a way for the kingdom of heaven to be brought into your workplace. And that's not just evangelism. That thinks about the economics of your job. I mean, for Newton, part of it for him was he saw that the economics of England needed to be called into question because it was benefiting from the injustice of the slave trade. And maybe you need to see that in your workplace. Maybe your profession is that of a school teacher. And if seeing the really, and maybe it's easy for you to see the really good jobs are at the really at the, at, the, at the schools that have really high test scores. Those are the jobs you're shooting for. But maybe as a teacher, what you need to shoot for is being in an under-resourced school where you can be a loving presence over a long period of time. Maybe for you and your job, maybe you're in a position of authority, of power, and of influence. You might need to think intentionally about how you hire, how you promote, and how you champion those who are on the margins. Maybe as a parent, you need to think about this whole thing. I don't know if you know this, but public schools in Lexington are majority-minority. In other words, there's more people who aren't white in our public schools. And maybe it's thinking about, okay, if this is the world we're living in. Every stat you can possibly imagine says that's where we're heading, not just as a city, not just in our neighborhood, but in our whole country is moving in that direction. I think it's imperative to us, those of us who are parents that we've got to equip our kids on how to think about this according to the gospel. Maybe for you, exposure means becoming a volunteer in one of our nonprofits. See, there's a million ways to do this. But success needs to start 
when it comes to you as an individual, where you as an individual have your own story, just like John Newton has his story, just like I've got my own story about how I've been brought, how you've been brought, how John Newton has been brought to repentance. And then we look to faith to love those who are different than us. I think another application from this text has to do with Cornelius. I was, when I was reading this text early in the week, I mean, I knew better, but I got to the end of verse 2, and I read all these descriptions about him being devout, being a man of prayer, being somebody who gives his money away. I was like, man, this guy's a Christian. And I've had to repent that that's the way I view my life. Maybe you've been fooled just like I have. That your church membership, that your theology, that your moral record is enough to justify you before a holy God. But friends, Jesus didn't come into the world. He didn't die on a cross. He didn't raise again from the grave. He didn't ascend to heaven. He didn't give us a spirit just to make you nice like Cornelius. Jesus came to make dead people alive, not bad people good. So do you, this morning, need to lay down your pursuits of being nice and ask Jesus to make you alive? Now think about the Roman centurion and this Jewish apostle. Think about how they crossed their respective borders. Well, they did it because there was a God who crossed the border of heaven to earth. His name's Jesus. Jesus left the land of praise for the land of rejection. He left the folk who were like him, the Father and the Holy Spirit, in order to come to a bunch of people who were not like him, you and me. As you think about the distance between the Roman centurion and Peter, it's vast, but it's not nearly as vast as the distance between us and Jesus. And Jesus bridged all that distance because he loved you. He was willing to endure the pain. He was willing to endure the discomfort. He was willing to endure the awkwardness because he had to be in relationship with you. And now that he has you, you can take risks. You can take risks to do this cross-cultural work because you'll see that this isn't a diversity program. This is a gospel program. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. Lord, I pray um, that you would bring us to repentance. And not only that, Lord, that you would lift our eyes from our repentance to see you, the one who's crossed borders. And Lord, that we would see you, that you live in us and you want to empower us to do this work because it's good for us. Oh, Lord, we ask for your help. In Christ's name. Amen.